This is, this is it for him. He's moving towards the last day of his life. So we're going to pick up there on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. When it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparation for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So this is a, for Jesus, this is a really important meal. In Luke, he says, I've earnestly desired to eat this meal with y'all. There's an arrest warrant out for him. He knows if he goes into the city, the ch- there's a chance that he's going to be arrested that will prevent him from having this last supper with his disciples. He doesn't want that to happen. Um, by law, you have to eat the Passover within the walls of Jerusalem, and you have to eat it between sundown, and you have to be done by midnight. So he's got, if he's going to eat it, he's got to eat it inside the city. And there are preparations that have to be made. There's certain food that has to be bought. There's a lamb that has to be slain under the supervision of the priest. So there's some stuff that has to happen. Jesus can't do it himself because he's, uh, he's going to get arrested. So he sends his disciples and says, look for a man with a jar of water on his head. Men didn't carry water in jars. They carried it in skin. So this guy would have stood out. Easy for the disciples to identify. This was someone who Jesus had already prearranged details with. So it's kind of the secret signal. The disciples saw the guy, followed him. They made preparations. And then uh, pick up in verse 17. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. So he's coming at the last minute again. This thing starts at sundown. Got to be done um, by midnight. So Jesus comes in right at the last minute. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, surely not I. It's one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. So here Jesus is predicting his betrayal not going to talk about this. It's just interesting psychologically to think about what he's experiencing at this point. One of his 12 closest friends he knows is about to stab him in the back, and he knows what that's going to lead to, the arrest, the torture, the crucifixion, and he doesn't do anything to stop it. He just very matter-of-factly, this is what is about to happen. You see kind of his uh, commitment to the will of God there. For me, one of the interesting pa- or sentences in this exchange is this idea of the son of man will go just as it is written but woe to the man who betrays the son of man son of man was how jesus referred to himself so he's saying i'm going to go as it was written about me but woe to the man who betrays me and you see the tension between god's sovereignty and human responsibility on one hand jesus is saying all that it's already done all of this stuff was foreordained this has all been predicted for hundreds of years. You can look at Isaiah, um, excuse me, you can look at Psalm 41, you can look at Jeremiah, you can look at Zechariah. All of those guys talk about Jesus being betrayed by someone. It says his heel will be lifted up. Excuse me, someone who dips his um, bread with me in this bowl will lift up his heel against me. That's Psalm 41.9. Jeremiah and Zechariah, you can put those together. I'm going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, which is what Judas sold Jesus out for. All of that's already done. God's in control. He's kind of pulled the strings. This is what's going to happen. But on the other hand, you have this woe to Judas. You don't want to be woed in the Bible. That's always a negative. It is bad. 
Read Revelation. The last, it's woe, woe, woe at the end. And that's when things really start getting. My thinking, you're holding Judas responsible for something that was predicted two or three or four or five hundred years before he was born. Isn't he just playing his part? That's not what you see here. You see, again, this, there's this mystery, this tension, paradox, whatever word you want to use to describe it. On one hand, we've got God is totally in control. All of this has been lined out, and Judas is 100% responsible for what he did. He doesn't get off the hook just because it was predicted that Jesus would be betrayed. And I think for us, we have to learn to live in that tension, learn to live in that mystery. On one hand, it's comforting. When things are swirling out of control, it's nice to say, you know what? God, he's got it. God's got it. He's sovereign. That's the theological word for what we're talking about. He orders my steps. His word does not return void. You can quote all those Bible verses, Jeremiah 29, 11. He knows the plans he has for me, Romans 8, 28. He works everything out for good. You know all those. You get them on the Hallmark card when things are going wrong. And they're true. They're 100% true. And that can comfort us when things are difficult. Then we also have the truth throughout the Bible. God totally holds us responsible 100% for our choices. Our choices have consequences. They matter for good or for bad. And that's the whole reason there is a judgment at the end. Is God's going to say, what did you do with what I gave you? What choices did you make during your time here on earth? And again, those things tend to pull away from one another. And as Christians, we have to learn how to hold them together, how to live in that tension. And most of us tend to lean one way or the other. And I'd encourage you to figure out which way you lean. Some of you tend to fall under the God is in control camp, which is wonderful, unless it causes you to be passive. Well, I don't have to do anything. God's got it. I don't have to make any initiative. God's going to do it. There's going to be money in my mailbox. The phone is going to ring. I don't have to actively pursue, we could say actively obey, anything, because God's got it all taken care of. It can lead to fatalism. It doesn't matter what I do. It's all determined anyway. I'm just a pawn on the chessboard. God's going to move me where he wants to, or if you like the puppet strings, you know, he's pulling the strings and I don't have any say-so in the matter, and it can lead to fatalism. Those, those things are bad. True, God's in control. The rest of that stuff, not good. Some of us lean the other way. This is me. I lean way over here to human responsibility. I'm all about obedience, responsibility, consequences, make good choices, all of those things, which is good, right, true, biblical, except when it makes me strive and feel like I've got to be doing stuff all the time. And it can make me anxious because I feel like everything is dependent upon my performance. I'm the one holding all this, things, all this stuff together. If I'm not on, if, it's not, if I haven't done a good job, then somehow the ship is going to sink. None of those things are true. So for me, what I have to remind myself of is God's in control. God works everything out. He's way bigger than me. I'm doing the best that I can, and I want to, yes, do the best that I can and recognize at the same time he's way bigger than the best that I can. And he can take the best that I can, and he can take the mess as well and work his purposes. I didn't bring it in. We had this um, compost pile in our backyard. Any of y'all composters? I don't get it. To me, it's just a place where mosquitoes breed. And so we've got this compost. Our kids tried to dig a hole to China. And so we've been filling it in with compost. They decided not to go to China anymore. And so we're putting all this stuff. And my wife threw something out there in the fall. And it has 
taken over our backyard. Like it has, it took root, it's growing, it has these huge leaves on it. And I, I cut the grass yesterday and I pulled off this thing. It looks like it's from the gourd or squash family, if those are different. It's uh, real long and it has a bulb at the end. Maybe like, I think somebody said it was an acorn squash. It probably weighs four pounds. It's about this long out of our compost heap, out of the trash. That's a picture for someone like me. It, it's trash. God is sovereign. He can use all of this stuff, the stuff that I throw out, the stuff that I feel like I messed up. He, all of that stuff, he can, there's fruit, literally. There's fruit from all of that. I need that. For some of you, you need to hear that. Relax. Rest. You don't have to strive. There might be stuff in your compost heap. And he's, he's doing work there that you can't see if you can just trust him enough to do that. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is the blood, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is, this some of it to me, four of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Jesus says, I'm instituting a new covenant. A covenant is a, a, a way of formalizing a relationship. Marriage, all of you have been to a wedding. That's a covenant ceremony. It's formalizing a relationship between a man and a woman. This is how I'm going to treat you. This is how you're going to treat me. Here's a ring to show you I'm serious. This is a symbol of my commitment to you. Here's one back, your commitment to me. We're doing it in front of our friends and family, in front of God. This is a, it's not just a sheet of paper. It's a covenant ceremony. It's formalizing a relationship between a man and a woman. It's a huge deal. And the same thing is true here. Jesus is instituting a new covenant, which means there's an old one. Genesis through Malachi, that's the old covenant. That's the way people related to God up until this moment. The blueprint, the rules, the contract, the guidelines, whatever you want to call it, that's what Genesis through Malachi it's about. Here's the covenant, and then here are the implications of living that way. You can go read Exodus and Deuteronomy if you want to see the covenant explicitly. We're not going to spend any time on that. There was an old covenant. This is how you relate to God. Jesus said, here's a new one. Huge issue, huge deal for us. Here's a new way of relating to God. I'm going to give you a little bit on what actually happened at the meal so you can see context. And then we'll look at this new covenant that Jesus does. Scott, if you'll show that. So the meal was very formalized. Everybody celebrated Passover the same way. There wasn't a lot of um, flexibility. The head of the household, in this case it was Jesus, although he wasn't the head of the household, he was the host. So the host would bless the evening and the first cup of wine. There were four cups of wine that, that uh, were kind of the pillars of this meal. Four cups of wine, and each cup represented a promise from Exodus 6, 6, and 7. Exodus 6, 6, and 7 is God telling Moses, this is what I'm about to do for you and for these people. Before he had done anything, before the first plague, before any of that, God said, this is what I'm going to do. Each cup of wine referred to one of those promises. The first is I will bring you out. I'm going to bring you out from Egypt. And then the food, all of this food was brought out and uh, the youngest son would ask his dad, why is tonight special? 
then his dad would tell the story of the Exodus, and he had all of these teaching aids, this food that you could smell, and eventually they were going to eat. And each food had a very specific uh, parallel. It was symbolic. There was a roasted lamb, which reminded them of the lambs that God said, you've got to, each family, kill a lamb, eat it, put the blood on your doorpost, and the angel of death will pass over your house. That's where we get the name Passover. The angel of death will pass over your house tonight. No one will be touched. Everyone who has the blood of a lamb on their doorpost, their house is going to be skipped. So they have this roasted lamb that reminds them of that. They've got bitter herbs that remind them of the bitterness of slavery. They've got unleavened bread, bread without yeast, because they didn't have time for the bread to rise. Because when God said go, they had to get. And so they didn't have time. So you eat unleavened bread and then stewed fruit. Now, to me, there's ten commandments. I think the eleventh would be don't cook fruit. You take something that's ripe and that's fresh and good, and then you put it in the oven, and how does it come out? Wrinkly and mushy and hot. The reason they cooked fruit, now I want you to hear this, you fruit cookers. The reason they cooked the fruit was because the color and the consistency reminded them of clay. Appetizing. And the clay reminded them of the bricks that they had to make as slaves. So those of you who tend to cook fruit, you just realize it's, you're, you're, you're thinking back, this is pre-deliverance days, you're, it's, it's clay is what you basically have at that point. And then adding it, this is a side note, I don't think they ate it for dessert. Don't put stew, don't. Fruit and dessert are two separate food groups. That's just me. That's just me telling you that as your pastor and your friend. Don't, don't combine those two things. And if you're going to serve fruit with dessert, for goodness sakes, don't cook it. So you've got all of this food, and they would have seen it, and the dad would have told them the story using this food. They can't eat any of it. All they've done at this point is they've, they've had the first glass of wine. They haven't eaten anything. They're looking at it. Then they would have sung Psalm 113, Psalm 114, Psalm 115. We're not going to do that. You can go look at them. Scott, can we see the next? Then they would have had the second cup of wine, which this promises, I will free you from being slaves. I will bring you out, first cup. I will free you from being slaves, second cup. Then Jesus or the host would take the bread, break it, pass it out, and they'd eat it with the herbs and unfortunately with the fruit as well at that point. Then they would eat the lamb, which was the, that's the main course, then the third cup of wine, I will redeem you. Sing Psalm 116, Psalm 117, Psalm 118. Then the fourth cup of wine, I will take you as my people, and I would be your God. So that's the structure from the time of Moses. That's how this meal was celebrated. Jesus did that. You don't see that in Mark, and you don't see it in Matthew, and you don't see it in Luke, and you don't see it in John. The reason you don't see it is because it was all understood. This is a Passover meal, so Jesus did what everybody did for Passover. What we're going to do is pull out the three key elements that Jesus grabs onto. He takes three of these elements and he uh, gives them new meaning. You can say he repurposes them if you like that terminology. He gives new meaning to three of these elements. The first is the bread that he broke. What he said is, take it. This bread is my body. This bread is myself is the sense of that. This bread is me. It's myself that I'm giving to you. The emphasis there is on the take. Take it. That's what he's trying to emphasize. Not that this is my body.
peace? Did the bread become his flesh? Jesus isn't talking about any of that. What he's saying is, here's a guarantee that I'm going to be with you. Proximity is very important in relationships. Some say absence makes the heart grow fonder. I don't think so. I think it makes the heart wander. That's what happens. That's why we want to be close to the people who we love. And when we're far apart from them, our relationships tend to cool. We drift apart. How many times have you said that? We just drifted apart. It's difficult to stay connected with people who you're not close to physically. Jesus had lived with these guys 24 hours a day, seven days a week for three years. And he's about to be gone, not just for the weekend when he's in the tomb, but in 40 days after that, he's going to be gone for good in heaven. And what he's saying to them, every time you eat this bread, this is a tangible, physical reminder that I am going to be with you. The last words he said in Matthew, I am with you always to the ends of the age. In Hebrews and in Deuteronomy, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. In John, what he says, don't worry. I'm going to leave, and it's better because when I go, I'm going to send the counsel of the Holy Spirit. The difference between, there are multiple differences. The main difference between the Old and the New Covenant is the difference between externals and internals. And you see that with this whole idea of Jesus' presence. The disciples had known Jesus' presence externally. He was a man. He could be in one place at one time. He could only touch two people at once. He only had two hands, just like you. And what he's saying is, I'm going to go, and we're going to send the Holy Spirit in this presence that you've experienced externally you can now experience internally that's how he can say i'm never going to leave you or never forsake you he can say that to the seven billion people on the face of the earth right now because his spirit can live inside of each of them and each of us psalm 139 where can i go from your presence the the implied answer is nowhere why because i formed you i knew you this idea that god promises to always be with us that's the first element of this new covenant i'm going to be with you not just externally you don't have to go to this temple anymore to worship me that's that's where i've been i've been on this footprint in jerusalem and if you wanted me you had to go there no more i'm going to be with you where you are external to internal second thing you see this is the blood this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for you. Jesus has taken that third cup, that one that says, I will redeem you. So I've just eaten this lamb. We've just eaten this lamb that reminds us of these lambs that our forefathers, our ancestors, slaughtered and killed on the night of the Passover. So we're thinking it was the blood of those lambs on the doorposts of my great, 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 great granny that kept that, that's what preserved our family because she obeyed and did that. We're here today. So that's what I'm thinking. That's what you're thinking. He takes this cup, the I will redeem you cup, and he says this right here. I don't want you to think about the blood of that lamb that you just ate. I want you to think about mine. I'm going to redeem you. It's the new covenant. I'm going to redeem you. Your ancestors were in slavery and bonded in Egypt. All of us are in slavery and bondage to sin. The Bible says he who sins is a slave to sin. And Jesus says, I'm going to set you free from that. I'm going to ransom you. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to pay the debt that you owe so that you can be freed from all of those things. I'm going to redeem you. It's not the blood of this stuff that gets the job done anymore. It's mine that does that. Last, I I tell you the truth. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. So he holds up that fourth cup that I'm going to be your you're going to be my people, I'm going to be your God cup. That type of language, when you see it in the Old Testament and the New Testament, almost always has to do 
um, with the age to come, when there are no more obstacles. There's no, uh, no obstacles between us and God. There's no sin, no consequences of sin, no death, none of the ramifications of sin. They've all been taken care of. And so we're free to be God's people and for him to be our God. That promise is always, almost always set out there in the future. It's, yes, he's, he is with us right now, but what he's talking about here with this promise, I'll be your people and you'll be my God, that's kind of Garden of Eden talk. That's Genesis 1 and 2, pre-fall, no sin. That's the type of, that's the picture there. And what Jesus does, he takes a vow of abstinence, which was common in Judaism at the time. I'm, because I so believe and I'm so committed to what I'm saying here, to I'm going to be your people, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. I'm so committed to that, I'm not going to drink this cup again until that happens. You can see in Acts, there's some guys, they take a vow, they say, we're not going to eat or drink until we kill Paul. They didn't kill Paul, so I don't know if they starved to death or what happened, but th that type of vow you can see throughout the Old Testament. I'm so committed to fill in the blank, I'm not going to eat or drink, and that's what Jesus is doing here. I'm so committed to making all things new. That's the maybe the language that we would use. That's revelation language. God makes all things new. I'm so committed to doing that, I'm not going to drink this fourth cup that talks about that until it happens. And we know that happens when Jesus comes back. And so what we have is you have this new covenant. You have two pieces that we can access right now. This guarantee that God is with us right now. This declaration that we've been redeemed right now. Those things are on the table for everybody in this room right now, period, dot, the end. And then you have one promise that's future. I'm going to make everything new. That's out here. And so we live in this time in between the third cup and the fourth cup, if you like that picture. We live in between I've redeemed you and I'm making everything new. That can cause some frustration for us. All of you, I would say, have experienced disappointment with God in your life, whether you couched it that way or not. You've been frustrated with him at some point. He could have healed. He didn't. Divorce won. Cancer won. Death won. Debt won. The jerk won. Something happened where it looks like God lost. We know he's all-powerful. He could snap his fingers and make everything right. But for whatever reason, he didn't. We live again in this time what he's promised is to be with us. He hasn't promised to fix everything yet. He'll fix it here. He didn't say he would fix it now. And so we live in this kind of ambiguity. That song, Hope Which Was Lost, Now Stands Renewed. Some of you can't sing that. You can sing the hope was lost. It didn't stand and renewed. You took your ball and you went home. Because you were so disappointed, so devastated by the hope that was lost. How, long, how many times do you have to try before you say, you know what, pregnancy's not happened for us. It's just not going to work. How many times do you have to, how many months do you have to pray before you say, well, you know what, maybe there's not somebody for me out there. Whatever that is for you, you kind of, we can get in those places, and we know God could fix it right now, but he doesn't. And it can cause, again, frustration for us, which if we don't adequately deal with, will cause us to withdraw from him, just like every other relationship you have. If you don't deal with the frustration, it's going to cause you to shut down and to pull back. Not good at all. The healthiest thing some of you could do this morning is just to gripe to God. 
and it's totally permissible. We show that slide, Scott. These are all of the gripes. This, is, this actually isn't all of the gripes. This is a slice of the gripes. Write those down if you want, or I'll email it to you. God put in the Psalms, they're called Psalms of Lament, all of the time. Here, you want to know how to gripe to me, do it like this. Jesus was Psalm 22, hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He griped. He felt alone, isolated. God, what in the world is going on here? If he did, of course you can. And for some of you, that's all you need is the permission to gripe, to express your frustration. For some of you, you, you won't because it's, you don't think it's humble. You don't think it's honoring to God. You think he might smite you in some way if you, if you were to gripe. You got to. Otherwise, it just festers, and it's going to cause you to pull back. And so he's, if you believe God's inspired the Bible, well, he's given you, that's like 40 examples of how you can do that. And my encouragement to you, if you're frustrated, begin by lamenting. Begin by expressing your frustration to the Lord. And you can see the pattern in those psalms. They always end with the declaration of trust. Everything is falling apart. Angry, angry, frustrated, frustrated. Don't understand, don't understand. I'm going to trust you anyway. And if you can end on that note, you're okay. So my encouragement to you, if you find yourself in that place, let us help you through that if you would. So Old Covenant, New Covenant. The biggest difference I said is externals, internals. There are others. The Old Covenant tend to focus on externals. New Covenant focuses on internals. Let me give you two examples and then we'll wrap up. This is Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That's the new covenant. That, that section, that's the longest quoted section in the New Testament from the old. It's the longest continuous quotation. They actually do a little bit more in the New Testament because it's a picture. This is the new covenant. I'm going to take these laws that were written on tablets of, or tablets of stone, and they're fine. There's nothing wrong with those laws except that they're external, and I'm going to put them into your heart. Many of you are parents. You know when you're first starting, everything with your kids is external. You've got to teach them through either reward or punishment. You don't take other kids' toys. You don't take stuff off the shelves at Kroger. You don't hit. You don't, all of that, it's all external. No one is born knowing not to steal. We're born saying, I want it, so I'm going to take it. That's, we have to be... We have these guardrails that hopefully as parents, teachers, police, whatever, we have these guardrails that are put on our lives that get us to a point where then it's internalized. I don't know all of your personal habits. My assumption is that none of you are thieves. I don't think you're not a thief because you're afraid of going to jail. I think you're not a thief because you know stealing is wrong. It's gone from external. If suddenly it became okay to steal, my hope, assumption, you're not going to start stealing stuff because you know in your heart it's wrong to do that. That's the difference between external and internal. The law wasn't bad. Galatians 3.24 says it was a tutor to bring us to faith in Christ. That word tutor, there were uh, well-to-do families in Greek and Roman society would have a slave. 
whose job it was to tra- take the boys, sorry girls, to take the boys and to make sure they lived right until they got to a point of maturity, until they became men. It was said they couldn't even walk outside without this tutor with them, whose job it was to instill morals in them. That's the picture of the law. Its job was to externally provide this framework for us until we get to the place where we don't need it anymore because of the Holy Spirit living within us who has written the law of God on our minds and on our hearts. It's from an external to an internal. Hebrews says this, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is all the Old Testament sacrifices, they're good and they're right. It's like taking a bath. It gets the dirt off of your body. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? You see the difference. We're not talking about taking a bath, washing your hands. This is getting a new heart. External. That forgiveness in the Old Testament is all external. That's all that the blood of animals can do. It can't touch your heart. The new covenant's internal. Jesus said, this is my blood. The new covenant, I'm redeeming, I'm setting you free from sin. I'm giving you a new heart. Again, the difference between an external and an internal. The issue for many of us, unfortunately, is we continue to relate to God from an old covenant mindset. You're not thinking that. None of us do. But we focus on externals, works, behavior, versus internals, our heart. At the beginning, for some of you, you're... You're not sure about Jesus at this point. You're still trying to decide, is that guy worth following? Is he worth giving my life to? And many of us, we think about it like this. There's this continuum uh, between good and bad. And we're trying to find out where we fit on the good enough continuum. Your pictures might be different. You might have your mother and your mother-in-law up there or something like that. And And you place the line wherever you want. That's what we do. And most of us, we put ourselves just on the right side of the good enough line, and that's how we know we're in. This is not Christianity. It's Islam. It's a Muslim way of thinking. Weighing the scales. Have I done more good than bad? If so, I'm in. If not, I'm out. It's not Christianity. There is no good enough. Let me tell you, God doesn't care about your behavior. God cares about your heart. And your behavior comes out of that. If, you can, if he can get your heart, your behavior will take care of, himself, of itself. If he doesn't get your heart, your behavior doesn't matter. The issue is not good, bad. It's alive, dead. And dead people can't do good things. So the first step for all of us is, are you alive or not? The Bible says we're dead in our sins. We're dead in our trespasses. All of us are. We can't bring ourselves to life. We have to receive the Holy Spirit who breathes life into us. Then we can start talking about behavior. There is, again, there is no good enough with Him. No, you're not. If, that, if that's easier, and you're never going to be, and I'm never going to be. Because, again, the works of a dead man don't do a whole lot. I have to come alive first. I need a new heart, and then I can start thinking about Behavior. Many of you, you're, 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 you've decided to follow Jesus. You get it. I'm saved. It's grace. It's faith. It's all of those things. But we continue to relate to him from this old covenant 
mindset. It's works. It's our righteousness. It's kind of like this vending machine where I'm going to him saying, look what I've done, now pay me. I'm a servant. I prayed X number of hours this week. I helped this number of ladies across the street. I told you already I'm a composter, so I care about the environment. I'm doing all of these good things. No, I need this. I need a new job. I need a raise. I need you to help me with my kids. My marriage is struggling. There's this disease that I need healing. Whatever it is. And I'm basing his response to me on what I've done for him. That's old covenant thinking. Servants get paid. Sons don't. Read the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. We always focus on the younger son, focus on the older. That's who most of us are. Most of us are older. We're the older brother. We've been home. We've been good boys and girls. We've done everything in our minds that our fathers asked us to do. And we go to him and say, you hadn't even given me a goat. He gets the fattened calf. We're throwing this huge party for him. He publicly humiliated you. He squandered your money. All of this stuff. You're giving him this party. You won't even give me a goat. You know what the father says to the son? Everything I've got yours. What do you want? It's, all, it's always been yours. It's the difference between a servant mentality and a son mentality. I mean that if you're a male or a female. A son mentality. It's all yours. Just ask. Don't earn. You can't. You can't earn any of those things. It's all grace. It's all freely given by him to us because he loves us. We're just we're his kids. Just like you don't ask your kids to earn their supper. You don't ask your kids to pay rent unless they're maybe over 18. If they're under you don't ask them otherwise. It's everything I've got you. What do you want? It's all yours. Right? You don't have a special cabinet with your stuff, I don't think. Everything you've got, it's all yours. That's the mentality of a father and a son. That's new covenant thinking. For most of us, we still operate as servants. I need something this week, so I'm going to be extra good. And then somehow God's supposed to pay us back for that. Not good. I'm married. I don't. I'm not faithful to my wife to try to get her to love me. I don't take her to Willie Ray's to try to get her to love me. I don't cut the grass to try to get her to love me. I do all of those things because I love her. And the same thing is true with the Lord. Whatever your definition of good works are, you don't do those things to try to get him to love you in some way. You do those things because you love him. And the reason you love him is because he first loved you. That's 1 John originates with him. He loves us. And because he loves us, we can love him back. And because we love him back, then we can talk about behavior. Then we can talk about good works. Then we can talk about what we do. But it's down the road. That's after I know he loves me and I love him. That's new covenant thinking. I am where I am by his grace because I've said, you know what? I'm not good enough and I'm never going to be good enough. I need you to bail me out. I'm sinking in quicksand. I need a hand. Pull me out. And he does that by faith when I put my trust in him. Let's pray. God, my prayer for every person, man, woman, boy, girl in this room is that we would know in our hearts that you have said, I will be with you. 
any who feel alone, who feel isolated, people who maybe are in that fog. Lord, I pray that as we take communion here in a second, when they take that piece of bread, it would be just like you handing it to them. They were at that last supper. This is me. Every time you eat this bread, I want you to remember, I am with you. And Lord, I pray, as nebulous as it sounds, that they would feel your presence as we close here today. God, my prayer for any who are on the outside of a relationship with you, maybe who are trying to earn their way in, they're trying to clean up their act before they come to you. God, I pray they would stop as they eat that bread that's been dipped in that juice. It would remind them, my, my debt has been paid. Every sin, past, present, future, they're all covered under this blood that was poured out for me. And I'm going to receive that redemption. I'm going to say yes to you delivering me versus trying to deliver myself with good works. And God, I pray for those who are in that, maybe that state of hope being lost, of frustration. God, we want to look forward to you making all things new. And I pray you would show us how do we engage with you on that? What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to pray? How are we supposed to act? God, for those who've been wounded, they've leaned on you and they feel in a sense like the rug, the chair has been pulled out from under them. God, I pray this morning again as they take this communion that their hope would be renewed and restored, that they would make a small step this morning saying I'm going to re-up in this area of my life. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with worship and communion. If you're helping with that, could you come forward? The way we take communion here at Stonebridge, you can come forward. It's easier to come forward by rows, but you don't have to do that. Uh, Break off a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, and then eat it. There's gluten-free bread here on this chair if you need that, by all means. We'll have ministry teams in the corners. Uh, If you're on the ministry teams, if y'all come forward, you guys can slide in. Um, Y'all come on. We'll have ministry teams in the corners. We'd love to pray with you about anything going on in your life. Anything I shared that stirred something, anything else, we'd love to pray with you. Both of these front rows will be open. If you want to kneel and pray, we'll leave you alone. Um, But we would love the chance to pray with you. So you guys can stand. um, We'll worship a bit. And Bo will dismiss us um, when we're done. You guys can come forward as you want.